Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 8th of December, 2015, here across the Dateline in Japan. And today we're joined on the line from the United States by Jim Steele, who was a director and instructor at the Sierra Nevada Field Campus from of San Francisco State University from 1985 to 2009, where he taught on plants and nature study, natural sciences for teachers, bird banding, and bird identification. He is also the author of a book, Landscapes and Cycles, An Environmentalist Journey to Climate Skepticism. And he also runs a website uh, along the same lines, landscapesandcycles.net. Of course, links to all of these resources will be in the show notes for today's interview at corporatereport.com as usual. But let's bring him up on the program. Jim, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you, James, for having me on. Well, I think probably we should start with a little bit about your background, and it is an intriguing title for your book, uh, Landscapes and Cycles, An Environmentalist's Journey to Climate Skepticism. And I know one of the frequently asked questions in the sidebar of your website is, why would an environmentalist be a climate skeptic? And I think that's a good place to start this conversation for those who still believe that only oil-funded shills could possibly disbelieve the science of climate change. So let's talk a little bit about that. How did you come to, to be a climate skeptic? And and uh, tell us uh, about how that plays into your position at uh, the San Francisco State University Sierra Nevada field campus? Well, a, a part of my position was doing research in the Sierra Nevada, and the U.S. Forest Service hired me to monitor uh, bird life and, and a number of uh, riparian meadow situations. And we had, a, we had a meadow where there was a bird crash, a uh, population crash, and, it's, it, and a lot of people said, oh my God, this is just what uh, global warming says, and you're going to have a heating of the of the environment and it's going to dry out a meadow. Well, it, it turned out as I as I looked at all this, it was it was a landscape issue. It was people had kind of screwed up the environment by changing the hydrology, changing the way the the wetlands were. And as and as I looked into the temperature change throughout all of the Sierra Nevada, temperatures were higher in the 30s if you look at maximum temperatures, and, and lower at our time. So it, it wasn't an issue of, of warming driving these animals uh, into extinction. It was a matter of, of a landscape change that we were able to fix. You know, well, we pushed for a whole watershed uh, reconstruction. We, we brought birds back greater than any time I'd ever observed. And that got me thinking about all these other things. And so I started investigating some of the stuff that was uh, being uh, claimed in, in California, like butterflies and pica. And, and to me, all those studies turned out to be bogus. And and there's two aspects to the whole global warming thing. One is how sensitive is our environment to, to CO2 and, and how catastrophic. And so I came into it from the point of view that, you know, these claims that it's catastrophic are, are, are really misguided and they're sort of being hyped. You know, it's almost if people are just jumping on a bandwagon without critically thinking. And, and I try to uh, replicate a couple of studies. One of the iconic studies was by a person called Camille Parmesan, and she said, oh, look at all these butterflies are going extinct in California. And, and I knew some of those populations were near me, and it had nothing to, uh, to do with climate change. It was usually to do with landscape change. So, so I tried to replicate it. She refused to, to give me her data. But in our bantering back and forth between her and her husband, they said, well, you know, most of all of the, the papers uh, most of all the populations that we said have gone extinct during climate change 
those populations have come back. And and when I looked at pica, the the same kind of thing is it was it was a very short term kind of problem that that was being blamed for climate change and really had to do with other issues. And so I, I sort of, you know, evolved from that point of view of, of looking at, uh, at all these issues from penguins to polar bears to to uh, anything that was being claimed to climate change. It's how much are we misguiding our conservation efforts by blending climate change as sort of the easy answer when it's really other issues. And uh, from that, that's why I decided to write the, write the book. And I, I I sort of see myself as sort of a muckraker of bad science. And and a lot of those uh, published claims that were, these animals are going extinct through the climate change, they just don't hold up. And, and it, on my website and in the book, I try to document these very thoroughly. It's not always the easiest reading, but it's 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 well documented to say that we are making a mistake. We're, we're misguiding our conservation efforts by blaming climate change. Well, I, I think that's an important point, because if we're blaming the wrong cause, then we're misdirecting resources that should be going to actual environmental preservation, but are instead being misdirected to a, a, a faulty um, idea. And I, I, th I, again, there's so many different ways to approach this. And uh, people who saw my recent video on the polar bear population might have seen that I linked to one of your articles on that topic in particular. Let's talk about a different species then. On your website, you also have a uh, article on fabricating climate doom, hijacking conservation success in the UK to build consensus. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Uh, well, that paper is probably a follow-up in, in you know, Camille Parmesan was again part of that, and and I looked at some of her research, and, and she got acclaimed, invited to the White House as you know, here's a, a, a biologist that's showing this uh, fingerprint of uh, climate change, and and she looked at some a, pop, a few populations that were uh, shifting their ranges in, in England, and and I knew a little bit about that just because. I'm studying a lot of different uh, species throughout the world and how they re they react to climate change, and they had a number of species that were were going extinct because people were not engaging in in some of the same practices they were agriculturally. And heavy grazing kept a very short grassland, which was good for a number of butterflies that like to have a very hot surface. And and some of these butterflies. Uh, also depend on ants that that are uh, dependent upon a very hot surface, and so when they saw they were going extinct, some people that did some real good work on this realized it was just as the turf started growing higher, it cooled the surface, and some of these butterflies couldn't exist anymore. And and that was a good conservation efforts and what they did is they started allowing more grazing to keep it short. They even mowed different places and they were able to bring back a couple species. And then what Parmesan did is she she saw some of these uh she saw one of the species moving northward and said, Oh, this is due to climate change, not landscapes and she totally ignored uh all these conservation efforts to mow the uh the grasslands to allow these species to exist and allow them to move from where they've been pushed to the very southern boundaries of England further northward. And, and, it's in, and, I've, in a, and on my website, I name a number of things where, where good conservation efforts have been hijacked and pushed as, uh, as evidence of climate change when it's really been evidence of how we've dealt with landscape changes to bring back species that have been threatened in some kinds of ways by 
by human activities, but not by CO2. Yes. And in fact, the polar bear population, one example of that with the population having quintupled or so since the end of uh, the, the open uh, hunting that was taking place in the late 19th, early 20th century. And now we have this much larger population. But of course, the narrative is still that it's vulnerable because sea ice might melt sometime in the future. Um, very interesting. And of course, this also uh, plays into a successful walrus con conservation uh, being hijacked by the climate change movement that you've written about as well. So lots of resources of that nature at landscapesandcycles.net. And I'll throw the links to those articles in uh, the show notes for today's interview as well. But I wanted to talk to you specifically about a very recent article that you posted up about some new research about Antarctica that I did cover in an article on my website uh, a month or so ago. But let's just refresh people's memory. Your article is entitled, Is Antarctica's Climate Change Natural or CO2-Driven? There is absolutely no consensus. And that article starts by noting, the record growth of Antarctic sea ice has long been a troubling contradiction for global warming theory. But those who embrace CO2 as the driver of climate change typically countered that global warming was still mel melting the continental glaciers and raising sea levels. However, on October 29th, 2015, a team of NASA researchers led by Jay Zwally published the paper, Mass Gains of the Antarctic Ice Sheet Exceed Losses. If the new NASA research proves correct, and there is good evidence to suggest it is, continental ice is increasing and lowering sea level. That would highlight another major failure for both CO2-driven models and models of sea level change. The reaction of Dr. Theodore Scambos, Scambos, a senior research scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, was all too reminiscent of the hide-the-decline mentality evidenced by advocacy scientists in the ClimateGate scandal. In an Al Jazeera interview, Scambos asked, Please don't publicize this study. Others pushed back by simply listing any research that disagreed with Zwali, but rarely did they list the research supporting Zwali's results, nor did they delve into why there is no Antarctica consensus, as I will do here. So I, again, I hope people will go and read through this very detailed article, but perhaps you can give us an overview of why this, why this really matters. What is the point here that, uh, that has to do with the, the, the uh, overall consensus about global warming itself? Uh, it, it's it's a tad complicated in, in terms, but you know one of the major contradictions. All the CO driven CO two driven models would say that Antarctic sea ice was going to decline, and and just the opposite had happened. And so, uh, how do you deal with that kind of contradictory evidence? Well, a lot of people said, well, we're still losing ice in, in Antarctica, and and a lot of estimates of how sea ice is changing in Antarctica is is dependent on how they measure how much ice was there in the past, how much the the surface of Antarctica is rebounding or sinking due to past glacial uh, what they call glacial rebound. And in all, what you're seeing is there's no consensus where mo most of the scientists will say that that they really can't tell. There's just too much uh, uh, uncertainty and when they when they the one way they check they have these models of glacial isostatic rebound meaning how much is is the surface rising and if they think it is risen a lot then they subtract uh, a certain amount of ice away from what they actually measure and and so a lot of times measurements that were losing all this ice in Antarctica was dependent on these rebound models well it turns out most of these rebound models were, were very faulty and what this Wally study was just showing us, if you have a better accounting of the rebound, then we're actually gaining ice in Antarctica. 
And so this throws off this whole idea it, that, you know, the sea level is rising due to global warming and, and it's, you know, one part is in Greenland, the other part is in Antarctica, and this is going to cause these coastal catastrophes. And it, But instead, what their study was saying was that we think that those models are wrong and that we are actually gaining ice in Antarctica. Now, the IPC models, they knew in East Antarctica we were we were not losing ice because it's too cold. It's, uh, the average temperature in the summer is minus 26 degrees. So you're, you're not going to lose stuff there. And, but it's the balance of how much ice is being gained in East Antarctica versus how much is being lost. And a few isolated spots around an Antarctica where uh, you have this warm water, this uh, relatively warm water. It's, it's actually very close to freezing, but it, it's, it's insulated from the surface, uh, the real cold surface where uh, uh, sea ice freezes, and it's about 300 meters below the surface. And every now and then it upwells, and where it can upwell and reach the, the bottom of a glacier, it, it melts the bottom. The glacier kind of surges forward. That causes a thinning in the glacier, and, and so you, you lose a little bit of uh, mass. And people are blaming that on global warming and saying, but this is, it, there are all these predictions. Well, you know, we're in a hundred years, a thousand years, we're going to have this tremendous melt due to this kind of process. That process of of melting these glaciers is is very cyclical. It's and most people see it's tied to sensitivity to El Ninos, and El Ninos happen on cycles uh, tied to this thing called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, where you have more El Ninos for thirty years and then thirty years less. And you have more upwelling and less upwelling that, that is, they see it's good for, from a biologist, I got into this thing, how this upwelling for krill and everything else increases Antarctic uh, productivity. But you, you have these cycles where you have this acceleration for 20 years and you have this deceleration. It's probably been going on for thousands of years. But it's, but what you see in the media, sort of people hype every time you see a little bit of acceleration in this one, these small little areas where this upwelling melts glaciers, it's all, oh, look, we're going to lose Antarctica and we're going to lose all, it's going to melt and raise sea levels and drown all the coasts. Where in fact, what we're seeing is something cyclical and it's being balanced by this increase in uh ice accumulation on East Antarctica. So there's really no alarmism. And, and, it, and it sort of highlights the point where if you if you look at all what the experts are truly saying, if you're looking at the consensus of the experts in, in Antarctica, there is no alarmism. There is no reason to kind of fear that all of a sudden we're, this acceleration is causing a major threat. And and most of these experts say we're really not sure how much is natural and how much has anything to do with CO2. But what, but what people are bombarded with is this, this sense of, oh, look, there's this five-year acceleration, so that's CO2 and, and we're all going to drown. And it's just ludicrous. It, it's just fear-mongering that, that makes us look at, at the wrong issues. And, and one thing I try to push in that article is people who are examining groundwater extraction, which everybody's doing is sort of like is they're extracting water to help their agriculture. The reason we don't have a dust bowl in, in the in the um, prairies of, of North America right now is because we're extracting enough water from the ground to kind of keep it irrigated. But as they do that, all this water is now uh, increasing uh, sea level. 
And if people are worried about sea level rise, it's probably groundwater extraction that is the issue that should attract our attention and we should look at how to deal with this because it, it does two things. It raises sea level and it causes the ground to subside and go lower. And, and I, in California, we know in, in, in central California, it used to be considered a swampland back in the late 1800s and now it's dried in agriculture. <laughs> and as they've extracted all this groundwater, it's it, the ground is is sunk by almost a hundred feet. And I might be off on that number. I might, I might be a little exaggerated. It's a tremendous amount of sinking. If we're truly to kind of want to conserve and, and and make our environment more resilient, this is the issue we've got to look at. But but what I saw is like Obama was saying, oh look at here's this flooding, which was in in Florida that he blamed on climate change. If that is an area that is really subsided, the land is sunk due to this groundwater extraction. And the politics of this climate war is, is, is making us not understand the true nature of, of natural climate variability, the ways that humans are, are really causing change that we have to deal with, and it's putting it all on this uh, CO2 battleground that, that I think is going to be disastrous for how we can really deal with the, the issues that are confronting us. Well, that's a very important point, and it actually speaks to something that we've talked about here on the podcast before, where we talked about an article on how Nestle only pays $524 to extract 27 million gallons of California drinking water for its own purposes, and how that might be playing into what's happening in California more so than carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere. But I think you speak to a very important point here, which is if the, uh, the consensus on, or the supposed consensus, which you do a good job of showing was not a consensus at all on Antarctica was so wrong. And in fact, the reverse of what is actually happening, that means that we know even less about sea level rise and what is contributing to it than we, than was supposed, like we, we supposedly did. But that, that doesn't that speak to the point that uh, it, these models that are projecting what's going to happen 50 or hundred years from now are fundamentally flawed and thus again, pointing us in the wrong direction. Oh, uh, absolutely, and, that, and that's you know, you know, part of my issue is that everybody thinks that these models are are, are telling us. You know, I've talked to people on the internet that so we're all going to die because of CO two, and it's all because of these fundamentally flawed models. It, it a lot of us say, well, we can't uh, we can't replicate, we can't simulate climate change unless we add CO two to explain the warming. Well, that might be, and then they said, well, that shows that CO2 must be the, the true driver of, of climate change. Well, that's true if we, if we really understand natural climate change, but we don't. We, we've been absolutely wrong about Antarctica in a number of different ways. And, and, this, and, and the scientists there is what I try to show is half of them say, I, I think all the evidence that CO2 is affecting Antarctica is weak, and we don't buy into it. But you can go into other issues. If, if you look at North America, the east side of North America has been cooling for 100 years. It, it has no correlation with CO2. It, you know, it's it just we don't really understand natural variability. And if you look at some of the other, you know, you, you delve into the literature, see, we don't really understand how much warm water gets pumped from the, the tropical areas into the polar regions. And the Arctic is very susceptible to that. And a lot of the loss in the Arctic of sea ice and around Greenland has to do with the way heat is transported from the tropics, and it goes in cycles. 
And in the 30s, through the 20s, through the 40s, there was a, a whole uh, import of warm water and, and warm water species into the Arctic. There was a lot of melting of ice. That cycle changed. It got cooler. They retreated. And, and then recently, just it went uh, northward again. So we saw a lot of ice. What I'm predicting is within the next 15 years, you're going to see Arctic ice rebound back to what it was around in the 80s or 70s. You're going to see any species that move northward are going to go backwards just like they did in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and I think that will be the true test of these natural cycles, that we're going to see a, a, a change that is not being pushed by these models that are not even detected by these models because they don't understand natural variability. Well, you uh, raise so many important points in your articles, but just stepping back for a moment, given the type of work you're doing and the circles you move in, I imagine that you get quite a bit of kickback from a lot of people who would otherwise be your ally in con conservation efforts who instead have been diverted into the CO2-driven climate change uh, hype and alarmism. What kind of feedback do you get about your work and how do you deal with that? You know, it, people that know me, uh, the dean of San Francisco, the past dean of the College of Science and Engineering in San Francisco State, he, he wrote the forward to my book, and, and he's very supportive. He, he was also president of California Academy of Sciences. I've had a number of colleagues that are, are environmentalists that read the book and call it a, a masterpiece. If I go online and try to say some of this stuff to people who don't know me, They'll say, oh, you're just uh, a tool of the Koch brothers. You're being funded by the oil industry, all this same kind of blah, blah, blah. And I just sit there in amazement that, that they don't know you, but they're just trying to, you know, push you away. It's, I don't want to hear all this contradictory evidence. I just want to believe in gloom and doom. And, and it's, it's sort of appalling that, that, that some people actually, I had one editor of the San Francisco Chronicle say, well, what you say might be true. But, but look, you know, I think man should get his upcomings. Up uh, it's come up and soon, and we're going to see the, the, the Gulf Stream shut down and, and all the world's going to go to hell. And actually, they're cheering for this kind of thing. So for most people, I, I don't know how to deal with it. I just, I just look at it and smile. And, and I know I get, you know, people will attack me and say, you know, you know I'm, I'm stupid, I'm lying, or whatever they want to say. But I knew that was coming. I knew as, as soon as, as I attacked this uh, consensus idea, that that was going to happen. And, and, and most of the people who attack me are people who have no science background. They sort of rely on a consensus to say, oh, I'm just saying what everybody else is saying. And, and when you attack the consensus, you, you're, you're stripping them of all their support. You're sort of showing them that they're really naked and, and they don't understand the science and they're just kind of uh, leaning on what everybody else is saying. So those people who don't understand the science, uh, they're going to come at me. But the people that understand the science and that know me, that understand what I'm saying, I've got very favorable reviews. So in, in terms of what's going to happen in this future, I, you know, I think a lot of people are locked into it for a number of different reasons. I, I, a number of my friends are very left-wing. I, I came from a left-wing and going more to a, a libertarian perspective. But they said, well, you know, you're just helping the right-wing guys. You just, and I said, I'm trying to help the truth. What I really want to see is if, if we want to be good stewards in the environment, we have to have very good science, and we have to have science that people trust. And if we start doing these bogus 
reports that the world's going to hell due to, to CO2 and it proves wrong, it's a backlash against uh, our attempts to be good, to have good conservation, good environmental science. But if they're so politically driven that they just say, well, I can't believe it because I don't want to help the right wing. And I think the only thing that's going to kind of maybe switch this whole, the politics of climate change, if I'm right, if, if based on the theories of how natural climate cycles are happening, if we see Arctic sea ice start to re- rebound, and, and actually that's already happening, we've seen some thickening in the last three or four or five years, that if that rebounds within the next 15 years, then I think people... You know, they'll start to have to agree, well, okay, maybe we overstated this whole climate catastrophe thing. And, and, and you know, so all I can do is sit back and wait because half the time I know once people are convinced politically that they, they're holding on to climate change as this issue uh, that the left is uh, sponsoring and the right is, is, is challenging, it, most people are just they're based on their politics. Yes, politics does seem to be the overriding factor for a lot of people who haven't even bothered to look at the science, but just assume that there is a consensus. And it is, I mean, you point out another interesting phenomenon where people who pretend to be very concerned about the melting of the ice caps and all of this find, for example, well, actually, Antarctica is gaining land ice, and they seem to be disappointed by this or fight vigorously against that good news, which makes you wonder what they're really interested in here, other than proving a point. Absolutely, and it's not just the ice. It's, you know, if, if I show them evidence that the polar bears are actually uh, gaining in population, they don't want to believe it. And I show them the penguins are gaining in population. It, it, it bothers them. <laughs> they want to see some kind of gloom and doom. And you look at them and you just, I don't get it. I, I, I had some students come up to me in, in Taika. They're sort of a rabbit-like creature that lives in the rock piles and mountains. And there have been some studies saying, oh, the pike are all dying due to climate change. I said, and ask me, do I see that around? So well, we have some populations around here, but I don't see any change in the population. And, and they were disappointed, but they were in tears thinking, oh, climate change is doing it. And then when I told them that, that the, the pike are actually doing well, and if you look at a lot of the studies in the Sierra Nevada, they're doing perfectly well. And they're disappointed. They, they want to hear some bad news. It's, it's that, you know, I don't know, it's like a horror movie gets a get through all, all our juices going. That's what they're looking for. It's it, it just psychologically, it's sort of a, a, a puzzling amazement that I look at this. And I, I think maybe 30 years from now, people are going to look back and see this mass psychology, and, and, and it will be a great, a great study for people to see how people that are totally misinformed created these such strong opinions. It's a very interesting phenomena, and I think, there, yeah, there's a lot more to explore there. And I will let people explore your website, again, uh, landscapesandcycles.net, as well as your book, Landscapes and Cycles, An Environmentalist Journey to Climate Skepticism. Again, all of the, the articles and resources we talked about today will be linked in the show notes at corbettreport.com. Uh, Jim Steele, very interesting work, very detailed, lots of uh, information for people to digest. So thank you very much again for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, James, thank Thanks so much for uh, bringing this to people's attention because it's it's something that people really need to understand. It's 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 scientifically sound, and it's not as catastrophic as some of the media are pushing. So that you bring this to people's attention, I'm, I'm great. Thank you.